today on Ag News Daily. This product's going to perform really, really well from an eating quality standpoint, and that's how we're going to differentiate it from other products. I think that that's one direction that I think that the, the meat industry is headed. I think a secondary focus to that is sustainability. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Wednesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Joined by Ashton Carr, of course, and Delaney Howell. Ashton, today has felt like a very long Wednesday, so I'm happy to be almost over the hump of this week. I know, right before we started recording, I accidentally called it Tuesday, and I think you might have gotten just a little bit upset with me for going back in the week. (laughs) Yeah, no, that can't happen, Ashton. Yeah, I definitely don't want to do another day in the week. It's been a little bit of a challenging one to say the least we've got the end of the semester wrapping up here at the beginning of may my last day of classes are on the fourth so don't have too much time left in the semester but because we don't have too much time left everything is like all coming down at once Mm -hmm. so not having too much fun right now yeah no that's kind of the crunch time for you isn't it and it's crunch time for farmers as well as we're getting into the planting season here so Markets are showing it's crunch time, school. So it's just a crazy time of year this time of year for everyone across the board. I definitely think so. And one of the things that we've been paying attention to this week specifically is the weather and how it's been affecting farmers as we're heading into planting season. According to an agronomist that talked to Brownfield Ag News, he thinks that it's going to be planting season soon enough, at least in Wisconsin. So our Wisconsin farmers are kind of getting ahead there, it sounds like, as the cold cold weather is kind of moving through that part of the country. But another thing that I want to point out, Delaney, is we really haven't talked about how this is affecting livestock producers, because one producer mentioned again to Brownfield Ag News that these conditions are kind of taking a tough hit on his springborn calves, which is something that I hadn't really taken into consideration. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Ashton. You're right. We've been so focused on the row crop side of things, but livestock farmers, this is, I mean, they know it's a tough time of year to calve if you're calving in the fall into the, or excuse me, winter into the early spring months. It's a tough time, but it's definitely probably been a little tougher this year since we've seen some colder temperatures extend further out into the forecast. But I think, fingers crossed that there is some, uh, relief ahead because I was looking at the forecast yesterday thinking it was going to be cold again next week but thankfully it looks like at least here in central Iowa we're going to start getting some warmer temperatures across most of the state and to be honest I haven't looked past Iowa I've been a little narrow-minded narrow-sighted but I think a lot of the country hopefully should have some warmer temperatures soon. Yeah, I just pulled up my weather app, Delaney, and here in Lubbock on Sunday and Monday, we're supposed to be in the 90s. So, Oh, sounds like I need a trip to Texas. Well, maybe, maybe not to Lubbock because, I mean, those haboobs that you mentioned, they can be <laughs> crazy, so. That's true. That's true. But I would love to see one in real life. <laughs> well, they're probably not all that it's cracked up to be, but Delaney, moving past the weather here, what are some other bits of news that you're looking out for on this kind of slow news day? Well, Ashton, I've got to ask, are you a charcuterie fan? Yes, I I love the idea of them. Do I make them? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I certainly do because I am a big charcuterie board person. Within the last few years, really, I've honed my skills. To be honest, I kind of want to start like a side business where 
I make boards for people and then ship them or bring them to their events. That's a whole nother business venture. Ashton will have to work on later on. But JBS is building a subsidiary plant called Swift Prepared Foods, which is going to be a $200 million facility creating Italian meats and charcuterie in Columbia, Missouri. They just announced that today. And so construction of this plant was first announced back in August, but it sounds like they're ready to get the ball rolling here on this. And it'll employ about 250 people. And we should see some new charcuterie hitting the pipeline. I'm all for it, Ashton. I like it with a nice, you know, wine pairing or something like that. But honestly, I'm not one for aesthetics. Of course, I love looking at things and, you know, looking at the pretty charcuterie boards, but when it comes to the effort behind it, I'll just leave that all up to you. <laughs> Absolutely. I understand. It's not for everyone. Well, Delaney, speaking of new ventures here, it sounds like Ugandans have found a new way to put bananas into the kind of market besides eating bananas. Apparently, Ugandans have always eaten a lot of bananas. I didn't really know that that was a huge market down there, but a local startup says that it can extract more value from overlooked parts of the crop. TexFad is using natural banana fiber to produce environmentally friendly items like carpets and biodegradable hair extensions. I think it's pretty funny to think that, you know, your hair extensions could be made of bananas. But when we're talking about sustainability and all that kind of stuff, I think it's really neat that people are finding different ways to use these products that really just kind of get, I mean, you eat the banana, throw away the peel, mm -hmm. not too much happens after that, but carpets and clothes are kind of intended or the, the production of these carpets and clothes made from this banana fiber is kind of intended, it sounds like, to hit the U.S. and Canada by next year. So I'm going to have to keep my eye on this because I think it's really funny. I mean, it, it's comical to me, but also I think a great way for these producers in Uganda to have multiple markets to be able to put their produce into. And going back to these biodegradable hair extensions, I've just got to say in this article, they talk about, you know, putting them in your head. And then once, you know, they've done their time, you take out the hair extensions, put them in the ground, you bury them, and then it just becomes manure basically for your garden or something. Yeah, but my question is, Ashton, I'm assuming not, but especially with the hair extensions thing, how are they getting the smell out of it? Because I don't want to wear hair extensions that smell like bananas. That is a great question. I did not even think about that because honestly, bananas are pretty potent. Yeah, they're very strong. They're not like a calm food, like, you know, they're like rice. There's not a lot of smell to rice. So if you're making a product out of rice, okay, it's probably not going to smell like a whole lot. But bananas have a very strong, very strong smell. So hmm, I don't think I'll be signing up to try that anytime soon. But maybe you can and give us a review on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, I'll just be the guinea pig and test it all out. That sounds great. I love that idea. <laughs> uh, but I've got a little bit of news here that should give farmers some ease of mind as we look at this new administration. You know, there's always talk or concern as we switch, especially political parties, not just administrations, to see what measures get rolled back or changed under the new administration. And one of those measures that a lot of thing, farmers, I think, and folks in the ag industry have been concerned about is the waters of the U.S. rule that 
we saw changed under the Trump administration. But EPA Administrator Michael Reagan told Congress on Wednesday that he does not intend to go back to those Obama administration definitions of the WOTUS rules. So that is some great news. It sounds like he doesn't really want to change a whole lot. But he did specifically say we don't have any intention of going back to the original Obama waters of the U.S. verbatim. He does say, though, that the agency doesn't necessarily agree with everything the Trump administration put in their version. So it sounds like we could still see some potential changes, but nothing to the extreme, it sounds like, as what we saw under the Obama era. So we'll continue to watch that story, see how it develops here. But. Really, it sounds like, you know, he he doesn't want it to be overly burdensome for agriculture. So I think he at least acknowledges and recognizes that perhaps the Obama definition was pretty burdensome for uh, agriculture. Well, Delaney, we are starting to see some changes over in China. Earlier today, the country made a decision to divide the country into five regions to be charged with greater responsibility to prevent and control African swine fever. The article also mentions that they're trying to reduce the spread of other animal diseases, but I'm guessing that the main one, of course, is African swine fever since they have been struggling with that. China had previously piloted the regional control system in six provinces in the south. Under the new plan, the whole country will be divided into five regions. The regions are going to be tasked to ensure timely reporting of disease outbreaks, assess risks, and put forward control policies. They will also create disease-free zones within their regions and, in addition, make sure that, in principle, no pigs apart from breeding pigs and piglets are moved in or out of their regions. China has previously discussed adopting compartmentalization to better control the spread of African swine fever and from April 1st restricted the movement of hogs across different regions. The trial system in the south did reduce reduce some disease, but it's not really specified on how much worse off the north part of China was from the south when they did kind of pilot this program. So I'm interested to see exactly how much this new plan reduces African swine fever. I'm not sure how well it's going to work, but I'm pretty, I'm not nervous about it, obviously, but I'm, I don't want to say excited either. So I'm not sure, you know, how I can put my emotions into words, but I'm definitely going to be looking out for this because I think it's about time that they made this effort. It certainly seems like it. You know, if African African swine fever has been around for three years, so you think that this would have gotten rolling earlier. But hey, I guess never late. Better late than never, right? Is not a saying. It it is, and I guess it is better late than never. I mean, they did pilot that program in the south of the country. I don't know why they just didn't do the whole country to begin with, but since they piloted it, I'm guessing they have a better assessment of how the program can operate. I don't know Mm -hmm. if they're going to have like a headquarters kind of thing. I I don't know, but I'm ready to see how well it works. Yes, absolutely. I agree, Ashton. Another thing we're waiting to see here since we're talking about uh, China and African swine fever is China's appetite for corn is expected to hit a record high this year and is expected to see some of the largest imports we've seen in quite some time. 
they said that they have quite a few dwindling storage or quite a few dwindling supplies on their own front and have said that their state reserves are behind about 17%. So that we could should expect to see exports jump about 17% is what they're anticipating. And hopefully a lot of that demand comes from the United States. But uh, China is now saying, or Beijing, I should say, is now anticipating that China will need to import about 28 million metric tons throughout the next year here. So that is very optimistic. That definitely pushed markets higher today. And I tell you what, Ashton, it's a little bit of a slower news day today. I'm kind of out of news. What about you? I am as well. Are you ready to hop into the markets? Oh, I certainly am, Ashton, because we had another fantastic day today. I'm kicking myself. We were just talking yesterday about buying a corn call. Wish we would have because we're continuing to see prices creep right along, really skyrocket right along here, not even creep today. Uh, We saw, again, some new highs, fresh highs put in in corn and soybeans with the May corn contract closing up 19 cents to end at 625 and a half. The D's up eight cents today to close at 536 and a half. In the soybean pits, the May contract adding 25 and a quarter cent to close at 1497 and a quarter. The November up 10 and three quarter cents to close at 1310 and a quarter. Finally getting above that $13 threshold and seeing some new crop beans in the teens. In wheat today, we also saw great moves to the upside. And I want to put a quick caveat in here, Ashton. I know you and Dawson are going to be tackling an interview coming up here to talk about food inflation. And as you look at the markets, the wheat markets continue to drive the concern about food inflation, largely because so many foods that we eat are tied to wheat and milling and having that available product. You look at breads, pasta, etc. A lot of those are tied to the wheat markets here, and we're continuing to see wheat move right along. Today, May's Chicago contract up 13 and a half cents to goals at 673 and a quarter. The Dece up 12 cents to goals at 680 and a half. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets, we saw some weakness today as the June live cattle contract sold off $1.95 to end at $117.25. The August down $1.42.5 to close at $117.97.5. And And in feeder cattle today, not quite limit moves lower, but definitely some weakness today as the May contract down $3.17.5 to close at $139.60. The August down $2.60 to close at $151.92.5. And in lean hogs, the weakness continued as the May contract down $47.5 today to close at $107.60. The June down $1.82.5 to close at $104.52.5. And lastly, wrapping up our markets with the Class 3 dairy milk futures. The weakness continued into dairy, unfortunately, today with the May contract down $0.17 to close at $19.15. The June down $13 to close at $19. 1917. Ashton, without further ado, tell us who we're talking to for today's interview. We are going to be talking to a fellow Red Raider once again about the trends in meat science. Today, we are talking to Blake Foraker, who is a fellow Red Raider. I have to apologize to any Red Raider fans out there, or I should say non-Red Raider fans out there, we've had quite a bit of TTU students on the podcast, but I can't help it. It's my alma mater. Uh, Blake is a PhD student in the meat science program, and we're super excited to have him on. So Blake, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Ashton. So Blake, before we get started, I think it's going to be a whirlwind of an interview here because we have 
quite a bit to discuss because there's a lot of different things going on in the meat science realm that we don't always talk about here on the podcast. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and, you know, you're a PhD student. So you've done quite a bit um, in meat science to get to this point. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm originally from South Central Kansas, Uh, grew up with a agriculture background, showing livestock through 4-H and then Went to Kansas State University, got my bachelor's degree there in animal science. But the main thing there that that drove me to an interest in meat science was meat judging. And so once I graduated there, I went to Colorado State to get my master's in meat science. And then just a couple of years ago, transferred to Texas to get my PhD. So, Blake, as we talked about before we started recording here, there's quite a bit going on between master's students um, in the meat science program at Tech. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about your dissertation and the projects that are kind of going on right now? Yeah, so at, at Texas Tech, specifically within our animal and food science program, we have a pretty robust uh, meat science focus. And so several different faculty members working on a variety of different topics within meat science. And, and so specifically those being meat quality research. So understanding the eating quality attributes of particular meat products, but specifically related to the three red meat species. So primarily beef, pork, and lamb. We work with with all of those species, but primarily beef. We do a lot of trained sensory research where we'll train graduate students to be experts in characterizing certain meat attributes uh, within these products. And then we also do a lot of consumer research where we ask different consumers around the Lubbock area if they like the meat and then would they buy it? And so that's the primary focus of our quality research. In addition to that, we do a, a number of composition and yield research that related to how much meat can we get from beef, pork, and lamb carcasses? So essentially, what is the saleable yield, which is really important from an industry perspective because we're talking about selling pounds of meat. And as we know, within a, a growing population, uh, having the, the quantity of high quality meat uh, is very important. And so that's the, the secondary focus uh, within our, our meat science program. Both of those, those focuses are, are things that I work on within my specific PhD program. Um, and those are our two main focuses of, of my graduate advisor, Dr. Dale Warner, as well. But specifically, my dissertation project, Ashton, has to do with crossbreeding beef bulls to dairy cows, which seems to be a recent trend within the, uh, the dairy industry as of the last few years, particularly because of, well, well for two reasons. Uh, because of low milk prices, and then secondary to that, because of genetic advancements in the dairy industry. Essentially, dairy farmers have been able to identify those lower-performing cows that they're not going to be retaining or that it doesn't make sense to retain heifer replacements from. And so that seems to be a trend within the industry. We recognize that from a a meat science perspective because we understand that that's a terminal crossbreeding system. And so all of the progeny from that system are, are going into the meat supply. And so rather than having the traditional standpoint of the, the Holstein steer entering the beef supply chain, now we have a crossbred animal that, that is targeted to be much more like a beef-like animal or beefier in their type and kind. And so we wanted to understand how does that relate to the traditional 
standpoint of the Holstein steer? And then, and then how do they compare to just conventional beef cattle? And then uh, are there some attributes, some, some favorabilities that we understand from the Holstein that then get translated into that crossbred animal while still realizing some of the beef-like characteristics of the conventional beef animal. So really trying to understand some heterosis, some different different qualities there. We're still in the beginnings of, of some of our research, but um, kind of have a two-year head start and, and some projects wrapping up there. But specifically, my project from the, my dissertation work is looking within that crossbred population. We've understood that driving many, many feed yard bunks that within a, a, a one pin, there seems to be a lot of variation within these crossbred animals. Or in other words, we'll see, you know, these animals are, are 50% dairy, 50% primarily Angus, but some sim Angus or, or Simmental influence on the bull side, but, but they're all of equivalent beef and dairy breeding. But within that pin, there's a lot of variation where you might have a, a black-headed animal that if you didn't know that he had Angus influence, you'd think he just looks like a Holstein. But on the contrary to that, you'd also see another animal within the same pin that looks like a straight bred, beefy Angus animal. And so we wanted to understand the phenomenon of that. What are the impacts on meat quality and composition? So we're right in the middle and in the heat of that research right now. Uh, Previously, there's been some work in in crossbreeding beef cattle with Boss Indicus breeds um, in the late 90s when that was very popular. Some previous research has shown that Boss Indicus crossbreds, even with equivalent Boss Indicus breeding in those crossbreds, those animals that look more Boss Indicus are primarily Brahmin, ate um, and performed similar, more similar to what Brahmin beef tastes like. Or in other words, it was tougher, um, even though those an- those crossbred animals had equivalent breed- breeding of Brahmin. So some interesting work there. We understand that Holstein brings some some advantages to the table in terms of eating quality specifically tenderness and flavor. So we wanted to see if that translates into those crossbreds that look more Holstein-like in their appearance or more dairy-like. That's kind of where we're at with my dissertation work. But as a whole, we do a lot of work with quality and composition and yield work uh, within our meat science program, in addition to some some supplementary things like uh, nutrition and health and um, some some more specific meat compounds uh, with our mass spectrometry work where we can understand uh, what specific compounds are, are causing meat to taste really good or really bad, and how can we sort meat products according to that. So, Blake, that's definitely a lot to take in. And as I'm kind of digesting that, no no pun intended, but as I'm digesting that, I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, the trends in meat science and then the trends in, you know, consumers and, you know, what they're interested in. So with, with that being said, are you seeing any kind of trend with the responses that you've been getting on, you know, how consumers are feeling about a certain kind of meat or anything like that? You know, I think the the past year specific to COVID has really brought consumer trends um, to the forefront of the, the meat industry, um, particularly when we talk about quantity of meat and, and packing plants shutting down and and consumers, you know, becoming more on being laid off and, and having more of a limited budget. You know, they've they've branched out and, and started to try maybe some lower quality cuts that were say lower quality to maybe less expensive cuts that maybe in the past they haven't tried before because of quality. 
And so I think that that has really changed the dynamic of the the consumer scene, or at least that's that's the way that I see it. But you know, there's been a lot of discussion about cultured meat products and and how those may come to to light in the future. I think that's a essentially a whole separate topic and, and podcast um, in and of itself. But in addition to that, what we've noticed from a consumer standpoint is that specifically related to beef is that the, the industry is doing a really good job um, from a tenderness standpoint, or in other words, we're, we've really got the system down to where we're managing beef throughout the supply chain to, to optimize tenderness. Whereas in the early 2000, late to early 2000s and late nineties, that used to be a, a big problem within the industry. And so now we're seeing from a, an acceptability standpoint, consumers recognize that, that beef is tender or generally tender. So now can we improve flavor? And so flavor comes to the forefront. We were starting to see a greater percentage of prime carcasses produced within the beef industry, primarily because cattle breeders have, have focused on marbling uh, very specifically because it pays dividends and because of the, the marketing, the way that the marketing system is set up for the U.S. beef industry. And so we're starting to see and an average of 10 to 12 percent prime on a weekly basis within the, the U.S. fed beef slaughter starting to focus more on flavor now that we've recognized that the industry has optimized tenderness because that's what the consumer demands. So Blake, you mentioned there these composition products, these, you know, non-meat meat products, like, you know, people say fake meat. I refer to it as, you know, meat analogs, but either way, whether it's lab grown or whether it's just, you know, made out of these different you know, vegetable products, whatever you want to to call it, it's certainly been a big consumer trend. And we've seen a variety of traditional meat companies come out with these different products. And as we continue to look forward here on what consumers are willing to buy, where do you really see this trend going? I mean, I think a lot of companies are you know, starting to go that way because we're having to feed a lot more people on a lot less land and less resources. And so this is kind of a way for them to kind of supplement that. So where do you think that this trend is going in the next maybe five to 10 years? Yeah, Ashton, I think that's a a really good question. And I'll provide my opinion on it. And I think that there's lots of opinions within the industry on this topic. But firstly and foremost, let me just say that I'm all for animal agriculture and I will always uh, be a meat eater. But I think at the same time, we have to step back. And and I think from a a global perspective, understand exactly what you said in terms of a growing population and feeding people. And so I think from from that perspective, when we when we understand that that is a challenge, I think that any innovative strategy that an industry or that really a niche market can do to assist with that is a positive thing. And so I think for, for us to sit here and, and dog on, on cultured meat products, I think is, is probably not the right mindset to have because truth be told, most of us um, are, are going to continue to eat meat products. And I think that the general public is going to continue to eat meat products. I always do think that the cultured meat, um, product will be what exactly what you said, a, a trend. It'll, it will be a niche market. And I think that's a niche market that needs to exist because it, it, if we can produce that product in a large enough quantity to feed people, 
then that's a positive thing. I think we're really privileged as Americans within the United States that we have a, a very plentiful supply of food. But if we think about third world countries, if we can produce a product like a cultured meat product that can provide and sustain nutrition to those folks um, at a very low cost, that's a very positive thing where they may not have access to the beef, pork and lamb that we're used to in the United States. And so I think that that's maybe a different perspective and a different spin um, that I have maybe maybe than most. I think the other thing to think about here is that, you know, the term fake meat gets used a lot. And I think that fake meat really in my opinion, gives a, a negative connotation to really what we're trying to do in the, in the meat industry and in the, in the animal agriculture industry. Because truthfully, when we're talking about cultured meat products, that is still tissue. It is, it is muscle tissue. And so, yeah, does, I think there's lots of debate. Is, does it have all of the same properties of, of what we're accustomed to from a beef carcass or pork carcass or lamb carcass? Um, does it have all of the, the marbling and the fat no, it doesn't. And so I think that's where the debate is. But there is no debate that that is muscle tissue. And so the the primary functions, the physiological functions of that tissue um, exhibit similar properties to muscle. And it, it makes it a nutritional product. And it makes it something that, like I said before, can sustain uh, the nutritional needs of certain populations. But all in all, when it's all said and done, I still think that that's very much going to be a niche market. Um, and cultured meat is is not going to, in any way, shape, or form, replace animal agriculture industry as we know it today. I think it's going to supplement it, and I think in, in and primarily, it's not going to replace in current animal agriculture industry practices. Primarily because it's not going to be able to meet the quality standards that we have in place today. So we just got through talking about how quality is important to the, the vast majority of consumers, well, there's no way, at least in recent, in, in, in upcoming years, I would say within the next decade, that a cultured meat product will be able to outperform a, a steak from a prime beef carcass. Uh, I, don't, I don't foresee that happening within the next 10 years. Is it possible down the road? Yes, I think that that is, is absolutely the answer to that. Um, but, but in in recent years, I, I don't think that we see that that trend happen. Well, Blake, I just have one more question for you before I let you go. And that's just what are some other trends that might be going on in the meat industry, in the meat science industry, that not only consumers, but maybe even producers should be aware of at the moment? Yeah, so I think that we talked about the importance of quality. And I think that that's going to continue to be at the forefront of most people's minds. So I think that the, the U.S. beef industry has done an excellent job thus far relative to other industries in terms of creating demand for a premium product. You know, for, for so often we've thought about um, many of these agriculture, animal agriculture products being commodity based, you know, milk being sold on a per pound basis. Um, chicken being sold on a per pound basis, you know, independent from whether that chicken tasted good or tasted bad or independent from what was, whether it was higher quality milk, low quality milk. I think that over the, the years, and, and this is, this is dating back to 1900s, but I think over the years, each of the industries has, has really segmented themselves in, in the marketplace to understand differences in quality. And I think that the beef industry specifically has done as good of a job as anybody 
of that. Now, I still don't think that we're where we need to be um, to meet consumer demands relative to quality of animal agriculture products. And so if we specifically talk about meat and beef in particular, I think that there's some new technologies, specifically ones that we're working working with here at Texas Tech that will allow us to continue to meet consumer demands for high quality meat products. Uh, so I'll, I'll just shed a little bit of light on um, one of Dr. Werner's instruments that he's got here that he's really based many, several different projects off of. And so that's an instrument called rapid evaporative ionization mass spectrometry. So um, I think we firstly need to understand how U.S. beef products are currently graded. Um, they use a, a camera grading system within the plant that's then validated by the uh, USDA. And so it does a really good job of segregating carcasses, primarily on the premise of marbling or the amount of intramuscular fat that's located within the, the primary middle meat on that carcass or the highest value meat um, of that carcass, the, the ribeye muscle. So that's how car carcasses are currently graded. What I, what I see in the future is, is can we develop some sort of instrumentation that allows us to go beyond the level of marbling? So we know that the mar level of marbling plays an integral role in the satisfaction or the, the consumer satisfaction of beef. But can we go beyond that in the future? Can we use a, an instrument like rapid evaporative ionization mass spectrometry or REAMS to segregate carcasses on the premise of eating quality um, in combination with or independent from level of marbling. And so this instrument uh, was developed in, in Europe to for, for surgical purposes in the medical field so that when surgeons were operating on a patient, it could identify cancerous and non-cancerous tissue so that then that surgeon could remove that tissue from the patient during surgery. And so what basically would happen is this this eye knife um, would, would be running along a certain tissue and then it would basically be a green or red light on the screen as that's cancerous or that's not. You need to remove it or, or leave it. Um, and, and so we're essentially able to, they've since moved that technology you know, on from that for, for their purposes, but it's a really neat application that they've used um, in, in the European countries in meat packing plants there that we're, we now have at Texas that we're doing many different studies on to see its application here in the United States. But what it does is, is this eye knife runs alongside a tissue, whatever that tissue might be. In our, in our case, in our application, it's meat. And it, it essentially is just burning the meat. So it sends a, um, a plume of smoke into the, the machine, into the mass spectrometry machine. And then in rapidly, within a second, it's identifying all of the compounds all the matrix, the compounds that make up the matrix of that meat um, to determine what's the composition of it. What is the fatty acid profile? What are the different proteins that make up that sample? And so it's allowed us to segregate meat um, on many different premises, including marbling level, fatty acid profile, species, technology that's been used um, in European countries to segregate uh, pork carcasses that have boar taint, which is um, a highly recognizable off note by consumers to the point where they would deem pork unacceptable um, from a consumption standpoint. So it, it's been used very successfully in European countries for that. The way that I see the future going uh, within the meat industry, I think that that technology is, is just one, just one key point um, 
of piece to, to allow us to segregate meat products based on their basis of quality so that we can continue to move away from a commodity driven market so that that we're no longer selling you know beef on just a per pound basis which we're not doing that as much today as what we were 100, you know 50 to 60 years ago so now we can segregate products into to really high high performing or, or this product's going to perform really really well from an eating quality standpoint and that's how we're going to differentiate it from other products so I think that that's one direction that I think that the the meat industry is headed. I think a secondary focus to that is sustainability. I think within, you know, we, we talked at the, the beginning of the show about how with a growing population, we're going to continue to struggle to to feed those folks. And so sustainability continues to be at the forefront, I think, of everyone's mind. And so if we can continue to produce more with less, I think that's the common theme. Um, because I, th- I think that ultimately there's going to be more government regulation on animal agriculture. And so you know, us being able to focus on what we can do better to produce more with less becomes even more imperative, especially with a growing population. Well, Blake, this has been a wonderful conversation and definitely some great insight into what's going on in the meat industry and what we can expect here in the future. But I just want to thank you once again for coming on today and good luck with the rest of your time here as a PhD student at Tech. Thank you, Ashton, for having me. Thanks again there to Blake for coming on and talking to us. I was just telling Delaney that I feel like we don't talk about this kind of stuff enough in the industry. So it was really great to hear about his dissertation, what's going on in the tech meat lab, and what we can expect here in the future for meat science. Absolutely. It's certainly interesting. Sorry to miss out on that conversation because that sounds like it would have been a good one, Ashton. Well, Delaney, we're always having good conversations here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, whether it's between you and I talking about news or other silly things that we tend to ramble on about, or our exciting interviews that we're doing every day. So folks, be sure to tune in to agnewsdaily.com so you never miss a great conversation and follow along with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let the people go.